Okay, everybody, let's let's go ahead and get started. Um, thank you for coming on this windy day. Um, they may not be here. You can you can switch around there if you want. I don't. They weren't in church, so they may be gone. I don't know. I, I, um, George Handy was supposed to do the devotional, but he's sick today, so cannot do it. So I will do a devotional and. Or I'll do a short prayer. It's not a devotional. It's a short prayer. So let let us pray. Dear God, as we uh, continue at the outset here of wrestling with this figure of Paul, uh, whose very name uh, elicits both admiration in quarters of the church and consternation in quarters of the church, and whose work has had so much of an influence on Christianity, help us to see him both as a human being and a thinker and to excise from him the the wisdom and faith that you would have us excise and bring to life today in our world. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So, um, I this is my favorite book in Paul, at least to teach, and, and I guess to preach too in many ways. I think I told you all that what I like about Paul um, is that is that he really he is the best example of somebody that, that takes this eruption of idealism in Jesus and tries to work it out on the ground uh, in in the in the world uh, and I've I've always, since that's the world that we live in I don't I, I don't consider myself Jesus but I do have the responsibility of trying to work out what Jesus says on the ground and lead a congregation of people so so I've always related to him at that regard. I did my uh, doctor ministry thesis on 1 Corinthians in the late or in the early 90s, so it's pretty dusty, and uh, probably the two people that read it at the time have forgotten what they read, you know. So, um, but I actually did it on the chapters we'll be dealing with next week, which is chapters uh, eight through eleven, the idol meat controversy. So that sounds like a real Turn your TV on and set your VCR for that one, okay? Uh, but it's good. But what I, part of what I like about Paul is he's always trying to sort out in belief what is essential um, to believe in the Christian faith and what is what is non-essential. Uh, and he's he's pretty clear about what's essential, and and even that concept in itself is um, is a good concept. He's also working out his theology in a divided congregation in a cosmopolitan, diverse, and challenging community, which has been the task of many leaders of the church in the 2,000 years since. Um, I think it's the best book in, of, of, in the Pauline collection that gives us a view of the leadership challenges that he faced and that, that other early leaders face. And as I said last week, I think it... I think it could be a case study for Harvard Business School, apart from any elements of faith or religion behind it. I think it's just a great, um, a great book about institutional leadership, um, and it is one of the best books for seeing how Christianity developed from its initial impulse of Jesus into the life on the ground as an institution in the Greco-Roman world. So let's start by looking at the characteristics of the city of Corinth. Uh, I'll give you the academic version and then a, then a quicker 
uh, more fun version on the back. But um, it is a city that has two harbors, which makes it, makes it significant in its time, uh, assured it of commercial success. Um, there is what what we are dealing with is actually called New Corinth, because the ancient city of Corinth was destroyed in 146. B.C. by the Romans, and then about a hundred years later, it was refounded uh, by Julius Caesar, literally on top of what was destroyed. So my understanding is archaeologists can go all the way down and see this, the Corinth in which Paul lived and dig deeper and deeper and deeper and go back to, to ancient Corinth. Uh, but it grew quickly to, prom- to prominence again. It was made the capital of Achaia in 27 B.C., and the population of the new reorganized Corinth consisted of Roman freedmen um, and, a, and a substantial number of Jews as well as Greeks. Um, and so it quickly became pretty cosmopolitan, and we'll read some of the other groups in a second. Um, the ancient city of Corinth had been the butt of jokes. As somebody picked up on this earlier or knew earlier, particularly in Athens, for the, quote, entertainment that it offered which would be fairly consistent with that offered by uh, found in a navy seaport town now, i don't want to you know cast light on the any former navy people in here but you know you can read between the lines as much as you need to be, read between the lines different than an army town different than an army town i guess i don't know like i said god's in God's infinite wisdom, he spared the United States of America for me serving in his military. So I really don't know the differences, okay? But, uh, but Aristophanes, the great Greek playwright, coined the term korinthasthai. That's a verbal form, which means to practice fornication. So you were right, Wayne. Yeah, I know everything. I did my thesis on this. (laughs) Right. I have it all written down on my paper. Uh, So when I used to teach Disciple One, they had sort of a rhythmic way of describing the city of Corinth. It wasn't sophisticated like Athens. It wasn't holy like Jerusalem. It wasn't powerful like either. It was hurly-burly, commercial. Every vice known to humanity was found in Corinth. And it was ethnically diverse. It had Roman soldiers, Persians, Syrians, Greeks, slaves from the Roman Empire, Jews, Gentiles, and God-fearers who are non-Jewish believers in God. Uh, but they're not, they're not Jews. Um, it also had, and we see in some of its writings, uh, dealt with uh, prostitution, and there was both sort of a temple prostitution, which I've never really understood, but that's probably the the dominant kind in the New Testament where people were um, doing whatever prostitutes do, etc. They do with prostitutes in the in religious uh, rituals, and then as well as what we commonly know as streetwalker type prostitutes, and there were merchants selling meat from pagan cults. Um, and that's what we'll deal with next week to some extent, um, because not only is uh, meat was a very rare commodity in that world, and it and it and it therefore was valuable for nutrition. And one of the issues is um, some people 
by going to the pagan temples and, and participating in their rites, it's actually the only time they would get meat and for the nutritional value. But uh, much meat was banned by Judaism, and so there's a there's a debate going on um, that has economic overtones, but it also has overtones of how you get along with your neighbors, and that's part of what we see. We'll see next week with the idle meat controversy. It was also a dirty city, and it was a city in which the Isthmian Games, which happened every two years, were founded, and those were predecessors of the Olympics, as I understand it. Um, And it was a new city. I've sometimes used a a really rough analogy that um, Corinth would be more like Houston or Phoenix than like Boston or St. Louis. Just, you know, it's just a new, hurly-burly, more entrepreneurial city and uh, less zoning laws, you know. So, uh, I don't know. so having said that, um, there are, on, on the, kind of on the next page, um, yeah, the religious makeup of the congregation of Corinth is best that we can tell the church. Um, there were many, it was predominantly Gentile, which was predominantly people who had converted from, pagan, from paganism and did not have any Jewish roots at all. There were a small minority of Jews who had embraced Jesus as the Messiah and a small minority of God-fearers who were believers in God without being Jewish. And you'll, you know, and you'll see it's a, I mean, that's a lot of people. That's, that's three major strands of religion to have in one congregation that's like all the congregations then were pretty small. So it, it's a pretty diverse um, it's a pretty diverse group of people that would be open to um, to a conflict. The the interesting thing that probably the most interesting thing um, about Corinthians are just the variety of issues that are before the congregation that they are facing at the time and that they have written Paul about after he has founded them and left. Um, and this is really, you know, as you were reading, uh, you you hear him say now about the matters that you wrote. Now, concerning idle meat, that means they have written him with a series of questions and he is writing back directly um, on those issues. Um, in the first four chapters, there is an obvious struggle over leadership, and all institutions have struggles over leadership. What what this is essentially, we'll we'll look at this in a minute with some of the verses, but it, it is clear that um, that Paul was defending his leadership against uh, church members who had given their allegiance to leaders that had followed Paul and appeared to be, uh, on the one hand, more charismatic, um, more gifted, more attractive, uh, just like in politics. Um, And by the same token, um, a series of leaders who claimed to have a special wisdom or knowledge um, that may have been Sort of the seeds of or like Gnosticism, uh, but but whatever it was, it it bestowed upon those leaders and therefore their followers a sense that they were spiritually superior, and so a big part of what Paul is 
working on in this church is um, is factionalism, but it's factionalism around different leaders. And so early in the chapter when he talks about some of you say, you know, I was baptized by Apollos, I was baptized by so-and-so, I was baptized in the name of so-and-so. I'm so glad that I only baptized you. But then he says, oh, yeah, and I baptized you and you and you as well. But but there are people that are just identifying with with different spiritual leaders in the same congregation. Uh, and that that actually plays itself out in um, when we get to to the chapter that we'll be reading next week, um, literally about glossolalia and speaking in tongues, and that's that's a very important chapter. I believe it's chapter eleven in in Paul because he is harsh on those who speak in tongues, but what he's harsh about. It's not the gift itself, but the uh, the arrogance or the spiritual sort of uh, factionalism that it that it has tended or that it tends to create. Uh, and and to give you a, a preview next next week, he's really tackling that issue head on, uh, and basically is calling them to to love one another and respect one another around the essentials of what they believe. And, and so love becomes a big thing for him. And it's in that context that he inserts this hymn that we love, which is 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, we think that hymn was written for our wedding. You know, but it wasn't. <laughs> it, was, it was an insertion of something in a, in a time when he's trying to get trying to get the congregation to unite um, around their greater love for God and for one another than in, in the light of controversy over religious ecstasy and, and, and different leaders claiming to be spiritual. So, uh, But you can still have it at your wedding. So, um, so, uh, so that's one to four. And then as we move, move further in the letter... Um, there is in chapter five a, a significant issue of church discipline over a case of sexual immorality. In this instance, it's if you recall reading it, it's it's a man who is um, making love or having a relationship with his father's wife and bragging about it. I mean, you can tell from the context, and that's uh, not likely his mother. It's likely, you know a stepmother or a younger woman of his father or something like that. But again, part of that is that part of what's going on is in a culture in which people uh, have converted to Christianity from any number of practices or beliefs. Um, They're not necessarily, oh, you mean I'm not supposed to do that? Or, oh, you mean I can't bring that with me? It's, It's a question of what practices they're allowed to bring with them. Uh, into the faith. Uh, the the uh, related issue is that there are members of this church who, instead of trying to work their differences out within the congregation, are going to the civil courts, the Roman courts, and suing each other. Now, if you know, if you and you came to me and said, you know, we have a major difference. 
over a piece of property or a business transaction or a relationship or something, you know, I'd say, I don't want to touch it. Go to court, <laughs> you know, just to show how different it is. I mean, we we have such a separation of church and state here that, you know, we, I, don't want, I don't want to try to negotiate that. You know, y'all just need to go to a negotiator or something. But, but in this setting, uh, Paul is very disappointed that they're hauling each other into court. Uh, That's true. It like there were, there were that's a good point. Yeah, that that's a good point. That's a good point. Because um, they do, yeah, that it, that it would be a, a difficult reflection on the church. I uh, I once in, I mean, I really had this was a, a one of the best things I think that someone ever did. Uh, but in one of my congregations, there was a very large group of physicians that were essentially the only practice in town. There were like 13 of them. And in smaller cities, you know, practices have to sort of merge, and, and it, that's not uncommon. And uh, one of them came to me, who was a member of the church, and, and tipped me off that basically another member of the church, who was the business manager, had really been caught uh, an embezzlement, uh, and sure enough, that happened. And, and it was really what was neat about it is this person, you know, basically said, uh, you know, we will be okay. I think the person that is about to be indicted is the one that really needs pastoral care. So I want you all to be aware of that. And we were involved in, you know, helping her get an attorney and and all that. And the the group of doctors were just really responsible and caring. You know about that, and and I think that's. I just was really proud of of the way they handled that. It still was a court matter, but it was it was somebody saying, you know, you need to know this about about um, this family. And sure enough, it about a month later it happened. You know, the person was indicted and all that. So uh, Paul would have liked that move, you know, uh, I think so, or just the fact that that people. Involve their church in a way that was helpful. In chapter 6, we're back on sexual immorality. There's a lot about sex in, in 1 Corinthians, and we'll spend a lot of time on that in here. Um, and then the famous chapter 7, which I want to go over, which I think is a chapter that that has more wisdom in it than Paul often gets credit for. And, and I want to that's just me offering a preview of what we're going to do later. Um, then there's controversies over the idol meat or the food offered to idols. And what do you do when you go to a home and they set it before you? You're supposed to eat or not eat and, and all of that. And it's part of a, of a larger issue that I think is also really, really important for our society. Um, and that is... Um, individual rights that we have uh, which Paul very much believed in versus the wisdom of when to exercise those rights and when not to for the sake of the community because but Paul is very much wanting people 
to not always do what is in their interest or on their agenda personally, um, but to put the, the unity of the body first. Um, and and the, the longer that I have taught this, you know, in the last 25 or 30 years, um, the more foreign that concept has become in our society as we, as we are just, I mean, there's a, there was a really great article, I think, in the Times by Yule Levin about, uh, I mean, people don't, people now use our in- institutions as platforms for individual advancement rather than as character forming and necessary for society as his basic thesis. Paul would be very much for, um, Yes, you have the right to do this, but think about whether that actually benefits the whole. And, and he's going to always sort of side with, with benefiting the whole. Um, and then in 11, we have a very famous chapter that we're going to look at next week about propriety in dress, behavior at worship, and gender differences, which really means women being quiet. So... We will have fun with that chapter next week. I guarantee you we'll have fun with it. And I hope it'll, I hope it'll be positive fun. It should be. Uh, then there were abuses at the Lord, what? <laughs> then there were abuses at the Lord's table between, a gap between rich and poor. Then the long chapter on spiritual gifts in a congregation that's being divided. Um, in the midst of that is this famous, uh, hymn to love. Then he returns to the issue of speaking in tongues in chapter 14. And then chapter 15 is the wonderful hymn to the resurrection. The whole chapter is on the resurrection. And then chapter 16 has some goodbyes in it. So it's a, it's really a great book and it does have a, a thread going through it that's, uh, that's very important. Um, so let's look at, um, Let's look at the message of the letter, the overall message, and then, um, yeah, I think we're in good shape. Um, and th- this is this comes from Wayne Meeks, which is a deeper analysis than than a little bit of what I've been giving you. But uh, Meeks says the problems are diverse in the congregation, yet there seems to be an underlying unity, and certainly what Paul is after is that underlying unity. Paul has heard since he has left that there are factions and quarrels in the congregation. Um, and these tend to stem from invidious comparisons among the apostles um, who are, the, the people of the church are saying, you know, I like Paul, I like Apollos, I like Peter, maybe even I like Christ. There's nothing like arguing over which minister or rabbi you like better. You know, who makes you feel better, who's more charismatic, you know. I mean, it's just... The church has been plagued with this ever since Paul, if not before. Uh, but And the substance of the issues seems to be over leadership, but also the spiritual power and integrity of the leaders. Uh, some people in the church seem to have a peculiar understanding of baptism centered around a belief that the new Christian, the recently baptized person, retains a special relationship to the persons who baptized him or her or the person who, in whose name he or she was baptized. And this is where Paul says at 114, if you want to 
look at it. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, yeah, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. I can't ever remember either. I'm sorry. (laughs) Now, which baby was yours that I... For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. There is a there's a long strand going on here that Paul is accused of not being eloquent, of just not being all that great a speaker, and that that probably Gaius and Apollos, who I mean, who came along, were probably you know, really good speakers. And everybody likes a good speaker, you know. I mean, that's sort of a universal thing. Uh, but, and and one of the theories that we'll see about Paul later on is he, Paul has a wonderful passage where he refers to having a thorn in the flesh. And I'm sure that thorn in the flesh is a phrase that all of you know from the workforce or from living in the neighborhood apart from the Bible, but this is where it comes from. And um, Paul never identifies what the thorn in the flesh is, but he basically says, you know, I have come to accept it as something God has given me to keep me humble. It is very possible that the thorn in the flesh is that he was a poor speaker or that he may even have had been a stutterer because he does seem to be charged with not being very eloquent even though he's really a good writer so that's just one of the theories it's interesting to watch that a little bit in the primary is now about biden because sometimes uh, i guess he was a stutterer and Larry, yes oh <laughs> uh, well <laughs> it was god's attempt <laughs> Now let's no prejudgments, no prejudgments. Keep an open mind. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Paul was uh, well. Just look at Paul's personality as we go through. Sometimes he was humble, sometimes he wasn't. I would say he was a, he was uh like this. Uh, but anyway, the belief he's attacking seems to be connected to a special notion of wisdom, which is imparted to spirituals, but not to ordinary people. And that really runs from 117 to 3.4. Some Corinthians challenge Paul's authority thinking that he lacks this wisdom. And they express doubt that this unstable missionary will ever be seen again. They're basically saying, hey, this guy's left you. He's not coming back. We're all you've got. Uh, and again, this is trying to reconstruct what Paul's opponents were saying based on his defense. So it's, you know, it's not... Um, fully objective science but according to me because I'm now on I'm, I'm turning to to the next page uh, certain of the Corinthian Christians regarded themselves as uh, spirituals or in in Greek I guess perfecti people who had reached or attained a spiritual perfection in this life um, they felt that they had been initiated at their baptism by their apostle into wisdom uh, they they did not believe apparently in the future resurrection of the dead because they had been taught that in Christ they were already raised quote into the heavenly places as if 
you know, part of the perfection is being raised here and now. Um, and and it had an interesting effect on the way they viewed matter, the way they viewed the body, and therefore the way they viewed human sexuality. Some strands of this thought said that that bodily and sexual life were no longer real or no longer permitted depending on the interpretation because in Christ there's neither male nor female which I talked about today uh, but there's there is some speculation that and you've seen this in religious sex sex S-E-C-T-S that uh, that to deny the reality of the body led some to say anything goes I mean a, a libertinism because it doesn't matter because we're already raised in spirit others it led to asceticism you know that you cannot please the body can have no no pleasure you know a minimum of food I mean two strands coming out of the same uh, sort of split of body and soul or um, the sense that that the spirit is so much more um, superior that the more spiritual we are, uh, the more superior we are, and and that comes that's not foreign to Greek philosophy. But you can see how by now this Semitic Jewish Jesus, his teaching is morphing into you know a new culture and taking on its forms and and having a whole a whole different. Uh, going a whole different direction. And all of this is going on in the Corinthian church that Paul is trying to hold together. So, um, and then finally they believed that armed with the heavenly knowledge, they were protected against or exempt from prohibitions concerning the influence of idols, demons, and the taboos that ordinary society finds necessary. And, and it's it's opposite strands. Because I've been raised in the spirit, I can eat this meat offered to idols, and nothing will will happen because it's not really real anyway. Or because I've been raised in the spirit, I cannot do anything that would corrupt the body. See opposite directions, but from the same belief. And what Paul is going to do all the way through is combat the concept that there are people who have a higher spiritual wisdom than others. He's going to attack at the root that issue. And and just like one place that we see that is um, it's really in the introduction to the book. Uh, just let's read the first kind of the first few verses. As it opens, uh, and again, when we read these in church or when we read these with the unaided eye, we, you know, our mind just sort of passes over them. But, but listen to this language. Hear this language in, in light of what I've just described to you. I, it's, you know, basically I, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, I have been called to this office despite what others are saying about me. I, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ 
by the will of God. Not by humans, but by the will of God. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. He is saying, all of you are called. All of you are sanctified. All of you have been chosen by God, not just some of you. He's saying that rather subtly, maybe humbly at the outset. <laughs> okay, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Thanks. And then I'll just keep reading here. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him. In speech, he was accused of not being eloquent. And in knowledge of every kind, he was accused, and they were accused of not having this higher spiritual knowledge, which is gnosis, is the Greek word. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, not as you live in it, having already been fully revealed. You see how he's just subtly saying to them, you are a legitimate follower of Jesus Christ right now. Don't let somebody talk you out of that uh, or, or, or deny that about you. He, Christ, will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful by him you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and then we get to um, there are there are really four places where Paul has what what are called theme verses in this book, uh, and this is where he is outlining what he's really asking them to do and to be all the way through. And the first one is here at one ten. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, not by the name of Apollos or Cephas or anybody else, but by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions or dissensions or factionalism among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Um, that's probably the thesis of the letter and most of the reading I did and the, you know, and the work I did 25 years ago on this is that that is taken from the language of the Roman Senate. It, it's taken from the secular sort of civic language uh, in the Greco-Roman world. And it is, it is much more a call to be united in what's essential than, uh, than to deny your differences. It's not a call to be uniform but it is a call to not be factional. And, it, and as the letter develops, uh, you'll see him, uh, you'll see Paul making, doing something which very few religious leaders are humble enough to do, and that is to say, uh, 
I do not have a word from the Lord on this matter, but I have an opinion. And at other places he will say, this is not my opinion, but this is a word from the Lord. And so he's going to always try to get people to say, it's the word from the Lord you need to be united around. And, and the opinions, you know, the non-essential things that, that you can, that you don't have to be united on. Uh, then a second theme statement is if you'll look at chapter 10, verse 23 to 24. Um, after much of this has been developed, earlier I talked about sort of the issue of freedom and responsibility. At 10.23, he is going to say, quoting some more um, freedom-minded members of the church or leaders, all things are lawful. Yes, I agree with you. Everything is lawful. But not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, yes, but not all things build up. And and if you'll if you remember or just are generally aware from life in the church that one of the major images for the church is the body of Christ, that's just sort of thrown around a lot, especially in sort of young life and younger circles, uh, the church is the body of Christ. I mean, we say that all the time. That image comes from Paul, but part of what he is saying here is you can be a lawful member of the body of Christ, and you can do this if you want, but you should always ask, if I do this, is it going to help build up the body? Is it going to be beneficial to the community? And that's really a spirit that he brings. And when you're talking about differences over, um, you know, sex, over speaking in tongues, over worship, over a lot of things that the church is still, dwell, you know, wrestling with, um, that that's why this book is so relevant because um, because he's always asking, yeah, you've got the right to do this, but is the exercise of your right helpful for this community? That's essentially what he's saying here. Uh, and he goes so far as to say, do not seek your own advantage, but seek the advantage of the other. And that, you know, that has become more and more foreign in our society as we try to, to mold communities together. I mean, it's just very hard to say to people, and it's not always good to say. Uh, even though you have this right, think first about what's best for the community. So, Paul's saying that. Uh, a third major verse that that is a theme verse is 1313. Um, this is in the hymn to love, and it concludes, and faith, hope, and and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love and love there is the Greek word agape which is literally the self-sacrificial love of, of God in Christ for the human being as opposed to eros which is you know sexual romantic human love and uh, 
philos, which is brotherly love. This is agape is the highest form of love. It would be somewhat it's somewhat akin to Hesed in the Old Testament of God's unfailing commitment to um, to people. So the greatest of these is that kind of sacrificial love. Um, and then. <laughs> Did she do it anyway? <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's um, it's very popular with wedding services and and I um, I I have I often try to explain that or even will say it in in sermons that the way that it's not inappropriate is that is that ultimately, you know, marriage is a community too and and you ultimately do very often have to have to have the kind of love that puts what's best for the community of marriage or the community of family above. Uh, and so in that sense, it, pl- it implies. But it's it's got such a rhythmic beat to it, and it's been put to music so many times, you know, in a popular, singable way, that people have, uh, I think they have a, a notion that it's sort of a romantic form of love. You know, and I just tell them, "Hey, your exegesis is bad, but you can still have it in your service." You know, so, but uh, but I, it, it is really about building up the community. Yes. Because charity is the, it's what's used in that version for agape, which is the ultimate form of self-giving love. Charity for us has become more, um, you know. Financial and sort of it's what you do at the end. It's not as it's charity is not as significant as significant a word now as it's used in the King James version. But that's why, I mean, I guess in the King James time, charity was the strongest form of love that that could be. Agape is probably one of the few Greek words that is actually used in the church, even though it may not be understood. But I mean, if you if you asked, if you took a poll of Christians that actually knew or had been exposed to anything Greek, agape would probably be at the top of the list. So they have three words for love. For love. We well, we only have one. Yeah. It is. It's much more nuanced. Yeah. Right. So. Yes, sacrificial. It's really, I mean, the embodiment of it is Christ giving his life on the cross. I mean, it, it is love that is, is totally sacrificial, is totally giving uh, in a way that brotherly love or erotic love is not, ultimate love, yeah. And that's that's how it's kind of connected with Hesed in the Old Testament. Yes, Kurt. I bet, yeah, yeah. 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 It goes a long way. I mean, it's, and, and probably, Kurt, I don't want to diminish that at all, but probably when people are making cookies, they're probably thinking charity. You see, I mean, they're, they're doing a good deed to help, help your ministry and, and that, but it's but it's also true that in a you know in a prison setting, 
the expression of true concern for a fellow prisoner could end up being very sacrificial. I mean, you could put your life on the line by doing that. Yes, right, right. Yeah. Right, right. Why would people care about us? Yeah. But I, I would just think in a prison, I guess what I was trying to say is I would think in a prison setting, it's really dangerous to, you know, love another prisoner, give your, I'm not talking about homosexuality, I'm just talking about caring for another human being. That that in itself can put you at danger, but that could be a form of agape love. And it's just different than, I mean, most of us know that in order to survive, marriages need agape love. Most people don't enter marriage with agape love on their mind, okay? It's sort of opposite spectrum, so anyway. But if you use that passage, it's fine. Your marriage is valid. If you ask me to use that passage as your marriage, I'll use it. I won't wince. You know, so anyway. Um, and then the last one, 1513. And then I'll say some quick things and we'll take a break. Uh, I said earlier that um, that Paul is going to make distinctions between what is essential in the faith and, and what is less essential. Always calling people to unity around what is essential. And... Uh, he ends his book, his letter, with this crescendo of the long hymn and chapter on the resurrection, uh, which is all of what chapter 15 is. And so uh, a theme verse would be 15:13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation, everything that we've been doing and saying and teaching and preaching has been in vain, and your faith is in vain. It's in, you know it's on a false premise. Uh, so it is. I once heard somebody say that that in the writings of the Apostle Paul, the resurrection just jumps out on every page. I mean, it is it is central to his faith and his thought, um, and and therefore central for for belief. And that's not. Explaining the bodily resurrection, it's not explaining the when or the how. It's just explaining the what is central in his faith. And remember, Paul never mentions the virgin birth. He never mentions the birth of Christ. But resurrection is is everywhere. And what he part of what he's trying to do is to is to gather them around that essential. And it's not the only one, but it's but it's the major one for him, uh, in, so that they'll be unified around that. So um, let me just run a, a few affirmations here, and then we'll take our break. Uh, I said that Paul is using political rhetoric from the Greco-Roman world to argue for the reality of accord and unity, especially to counter the factionalism that is rampant in the congregation. Accord is a is a word, A C C O R D, that is popular with him and what he's what he's after. Um, and it's just interesting um, to say that Paul is using the word the the language from um, 
the political rhetoric of the Greco-Roman world. Part, part of his genius is that he goes into a culture and he uses as much as he can their thought forms and their ways of expressing themselves, their language, their concepts. And he's trying to translate uh, this Semitic Jewish Christianity into a whole new culture. And, and that in itself is sort of permission-giving. It's permission-giving to us to say that you know every generation and every culture has to try to communicate the gospel in ways that are understood by the people to whom you're trying to communicate, and that in itself is that in itself is just one of his one of his strengths and one of the things we can learn from him. It doesn't mean that I like communicating in every way that I should probably be to try to communicate, but it does mean that you know in in this country where there are so many expressions of Christianity that seem to have so little in common. And you can go into one church and worship in an entirely different way than you can go into another church and worship. I mean, it's just all over the map. And, you know, people like me are probably even less tolerant than some of you are. But the bottom line is... um, that is one way that the Christian faith spreads, is that it spreads by being communicated in the language and music of, of people, of, of the way people can understand. And that's, that's a good thing. I just want to stay in my little narrow box. <laughs> so. You did a Sunday school class one year last time where that was um, on Harry Potter, mm-hmm. Christianity and Harry Potter. And that was yeah, we did that too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is it is a language that people use and she used the sorting hat to compare to predestination and like That's great. And it was really Yeah, we had her here too. She filled the classroom. The oh, yeah. the woman from St. Stephen, St. Agnes, yeah. I forget, I forget her name. Yes. Right. Right. We're, living we're, under a we're the heirs of that. I mean, you, you look at Washington, you see everything the Greek or Roman Catholic. Yeah. I mean, the founders were the ones. So there, there was a tendency to want to be Catholic. Yeah. And they right. right. And actually, the, the Roman roadways the, and the Pax Romana, uh, the peace and the, and the growth of the Roman, the Holy Roman Empire, which we haven't gotten to yet, but, but that is a significant way that Christianity spread. And it also sort of tied Christianity to the thought forms that uh, are now probably on their last leg or, you know, are struggling for air, you know, in our culture. So let me keep going here. Y'all, y'all are doing great. I know it's kind of hot in here. I'll open some windows so all of you on that side of the room go home and get your coats. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, Paul tends not to take on the specific issues at this point on which there's disagreement. Um, or on which he disagrees with certain factions, he will in many ways not enter a food fight. Or he will try to move the conversation to sort of basic principles or first things, you know, rather than get caught up too much in the specifics. Uh, He will root his call for unity in the things he considers essential, namely baptism into the death, the cross of Christ in 117, 
and Christ's resurrection. I mean, Paul's. I would say there. I would say the two major um, definitions that you find in the New Testament of what it means to be a Christian. One definition is is what we would say is the imitation of Christ, of trying to live your life like Jesus. And so things like the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount are paramount to that. And, and the little bracelets, what would Jesus do, would be an, would be an example of imitating Christ. Um, another, The other major definition is being baptized into the pattern of of death and resurrection which is what Paul is defining it as is that you are entering into the pattern that Christ followed you're being baptized into that pattern uh, which is agape love you know following sacrificial love but dying with Christ and being raised with Christ and it's it's not that the two aren't combined, but they're they're kind of different experiences. And and you know, in in the full disclosure mode, I am the second kind more than I am the first kind. I mean, that language is is uh, just means more to me than trying to imitate Christ. Um, so it's being baptized in the the cross of Christ and Christ's resurrection. Uh, Paul will be very careful to call people to unity around these themes while recognizing the diversity of their gifts. Uh, one body or has many parts, you know, is one of his themes. His, this call for unity lies behind his own distinction between his opinion and the word or command of the Lord, uh, particularly in chapter 7. So, so in that long chapter that we'll do after the break on, on sex, sexuality, um, in 7.6, 7.10, 7.12, and 7.25, he makes a distinction between his opinion and, and the command of the Lord. His assertions of the difference between all things being lawful versus all things being beneficial. You know, when you talk about the spirit of the law, Paul would be very much, uh, what's, what's the spirit of this law? You know, not just what's the legal. Um, and his hymn to love in the midst of dealing with the issues of speaking in tongues. I mean, this divisive, ecstatic experience of speaking in tongues. And he breaks out into a hymn. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never dies. I mean, that's part of his genius. Because of all these reasons, it is a terrific letter for contemporary Christians who live in a world and a church that is diverse and as potentially factional as the city and church at Corinth, and who focus on what is essential and defining. And basically, those were words that I wrote 25 years ago, and we're a little more divided than we are than we were in the early 90s. We're a little more factional than we were in the early 90s. We're a little more at each other's throats than we were in the early 90s. Not too much, but a little bit. The seeds were there, I know. So, let's take a break. If there are any cookies left, you may have them. <laughs> they were wonderful. They are. So go get them. If you've already had one, please, for the good of the community, let those who haven't eat go first, okay? So. Okay, let's, um, I think what I want to do for, 
for the sake of time and just for our pacing, since we've done a fair amount about chapter 1, I think I want to go ahead into chapter 7, which is where he does deal with, I say it's sex, it's not just sex, it's marriage and divorce, and I mean, it's the whole, the whole thing, and uh, I've got to say that what I'm going to, you know, what I'm going to lead you through is a, it's not so much to defend Paul as to, I think it's just a more positive view of that chapter than we would, than we would often be inclined to have, and it's probably a less legalistic view than, than you would hear often. Um, by people who who would talk about this chapter. So again, I want to be truth in advertising, and I just want to I want to walk you through it, and I'll stop along the way and uh, and comment. So so turn to chapter seven, and we're just going to start at the beginning um, of First Corinthians, and and he begins now concerning the matters about which you wrote. This is one of the topics or series of topics that the Corinthians wrote him about after he had left. And he starts by quoting them. Uh, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. That's the quote. And and then he says, but, so he's agreeing with that. You've got to realize that Paul was not married. He was essentially an, an, an ascetic, which you'll see later. Uh then he says, but because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And and my comment about this is is two things. On one level, as well, and they're combined. I mean, Paul obviously at this point is aware of the sheer force of human sexual attraction, um, and he is not particularly uh, enamored of that force. I mean, he's aware both of its power and, and of the damage it can do. So he does not have a positive view of it, but he's aware of it. And, and in light of that awareness, what he has just written is remarkably equal male to female, which he, he never gets credit for. I mean, there are, there are counselors and preachers and teachers that would say the wife does not have authority over her own body but would not give the second half of it, I'm sure. I mean, it's crazy. This He's not going to always be this equal. I'm not <laughs> going to find equality in everything Paul says. But this is a place where, given that he thinks sexuality is, is a force that has to be uh, managed uh, and, and basically saying, you know, because it's so powerful, people need to be married and they need to have one wife and they need to, you know, one spouse and they need to to give themselves to each other when the other needs it. That's basically what he's saying. Now, on 5, I mean verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again. Why? 
so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is very much in to the importance of of control of the self-controlling the bodily passions. And so he's saying, you know, give yourselves to each other unless by agreement that would be mutual you are giving up sex for Lent. You see? For a specified period of time. And again, then you come together so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I think Paul deeply knew the power of sexual passion. I think the so in this in this sentence represents the reason for coming together again so that sexual passion in a time of absence or abstinence would not tempt for lack of self-control. Um, you know, Paul's not specific about what he's what he's referring to. Uh, we can think of those ourselves. Uh, is Paul here being the church lady? Uh, maybe uh, he's certainly tagged with that with that image. But I also think, or I would just argue or put before you, that Paul is deeply aware of how dominant sexual passion can be in a person's life. And as we'll see later, he wants to provide a harness and an outlet for such passion. Why? So that we are free to serve the Lord. That will be his essential thesis. Verse 6. This I say by way of concession, not of command. This is a place where he's saying, I am giving you this advice. I am I am making a concession to the power of sexuality, but I don't have this as a command from God. Um, verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. Dana, out of context, that's not a humble comment. <laughs> okay, I understand that. But what he is talking about there is, I wish that everybody uh, were celibate. Because Paul was celibate, and uh, you know, and again, as we're you know, just a minute, just a minute, as we're as we're getting here, remember, he thinks that Christ is coming back in his lifetime, and that the world's going to be over, and what he is saying is. I wish that everybody could be celibate like I am, and you'll see later, so that they can focus on serving the Lord. That's essentially what he's saying, and it's it's fun to see how he develops that. So, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each person has a particular gift from God, one having one kind and another having a different kind. This may initially sound what this may initially sound arrogant. Now, you all stop it over there. <laughs> This is why Paul said women shouldn't talk in church. <laughs> this is the women's time. I know, I know. <laughs> Just share what you have to say, not with your husbands, but with all of us. <laughs> we want to know. Okay. Um, anyway, Paul may this this may initially sound arrogant on Paul's part, and I can see where it does. But again, I think he's acknowledging how unusual a gift of celibacy is, and how specific. In other words, how non-universal it is. He is not prescribing celibacy for any except those who truly have that gift while he's acknowledging the gifts of others. This is important for what's to come concerning spiritual gifts in chapters 12 to 14. Yes? Was celibacy a normal thing within 
there's not much celibacy in Judaism. I don't think. I mean, there's some, but there's not much of a. Yes, this this would be more something that you would find in certain strands of the Greco-Roman world that denied the body. See, so so these were and these are probably Gentile Christians that, you know. Yes, Janet. Oh yes, it does. Along with the fact that Jesus was not married and Jesus was a man and all that. What? Well, yes, yeah. Mm, well, he didn't. I think that I think Paul is deeply aware of the power of sexuality. How he got that awareness, I don't know. But I mean, I think he talks so much about self-control. I can't help but think that he knows it personally. Right. <laughs> so, so these again. I'm just I'm giving you my take on him. So, right. Now let's let's go back to the text here. So he has said, "I wish in seven, I wish that all myself, that all were as I myself am, but each as a particular gift from God, one having one kind and another having a different kind." Then he says he's going to outline the different categories of people that that they're concerned about and that exist that exist in his knowledge at the time. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they are not practicing self-control, then they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. The King James Version says it is better to marry than to burn. And, and you know, again, he thinks the world's coming to an end. He's getting people to serve God. I think he knows the power of passion. Now, the entire focus is on self-control. Decisions about marriage or remaining unmarried should be made on that basis. Self-control allows one to focus one's spiritual gifts. Um and in terms of the aflame with passion or, you know, I've said this before to classes and it's too good to pass up. Uh, it's better to marry than to burn. I have never started a wedding. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the presence of God to join this man and this woman in holy marriage for it is better to marry than to, marry than to burn. <laughs> I am tempted. <laughs> it is not... <laughs> You know, it is not the highest and most vaulted view of why you would get married. There's nothing in here about creation, about being fruitful and multiplying. There's nothing in here about love. I mean, it is you get married if you cannot control your passions so that you can be more focused on the Lord. But then he's going to, in a minute, tell you all the reasons why being married takes your focus away from the Lord. Okay? Yes? I noticed. Yeah. Make that connection that you know he 
Yeah, he's not saying go do it here, 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 here. He's well, saying. He's saying it because if you didn't, you'd probably do it here. Yeah, I see. see. Yeah, yeah. He probably knows me well. I don't. Know. Uh, I um. I I've never heard that said, but I think you're probably onto something. I mean, I think what he seems to be expressing is the awareness of the power of passion, and and that doesn't seem to be related. That may not be related to relationships. You're right. I don't see anything in the text that says it is. I think there there might be some wisdom there. Yes. Right. I know. I've never started a wedding service with that either. <laughs> so however true. We're gonna get there. Right. Right. We're gonna get there. So. So anyway, this view of marriage is different than Genesis and the Song of Solomon. It's different from Proverbs 7. It is much less vaulted. It is more instrumental. It is unnecessary evil, I think. I do not know how the evangelical community gets family values out of Paul and Jesus. <laughs> you know, I don't know where they get that because um, this is a, it's a pragmatic view of marriage. Okay, now let's keep going. 10, verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband but if she does separate let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Again, it's an, it's an equal prohibition. To the rest I say, this is the non-married, I and not the Lord, that if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it, are, but as it is, they are holy. He's really reverting more to a Judaism here. And then this is an important verse. Uh, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. It is to peace that God has called you. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Again, a parallelism here. I will say that that text, uh, really that sort of 12 through 16, um, I, I heard it used pastorally, you know, back back when I was in college and sort of wrestling with, you know, what what is all, what is all Paul mean? But I, but I've also used it pastorally and drawn strength from that in terms of, um, I mean, it's it's a loose translation. It's not even a loose translation, but so often in in marriages there is just a breakdown to where there's no peace and and it it's a way of saying and sometimes that's even to the point of 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 such different belief systems developing that that you just can't reasonably ask people to keep going and and I you know I often say that it's 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 not a literal application of this, but it's it's a verse that's that feels pretty healing to people. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. People that are really wrestling with whether it's right um, to divorce. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, and that's sort of a that almost goes back to to the to the Jewish concept that um, that the children are included in the covenant of Abraham, you know, by virtue of their birth. I think that's that that's much stronger in in Judaism than it is here. And yeah, Bay through the father, yeah. Uh, but it's just, I mean, that that promise to Abraham and his children and his children. You know, it, it's a. I, I think that's probably where that's coming from. So stick with it, stick with it. I know it's hard, but stick with it. Okay, uh, we're getting there. Uh, and then then we get into seventeen, uh, verse seventeen. Yeah, we've done twelve, sixteen. Yeah, yeah. Verse 17, however that may be, let each, this is where it it sort of gets important, let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned to which God has called you. This is my rule in all of the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision, which you couldn't do anyway. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Circumcision itself is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but obeying the commandments of God is everything. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. Were you a slave when, call, when called? This is, this is tough, but it's also got a context. Do not be concerned about it. Even if you gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. This is a very tough passage, particularly in the way it's been used. It was used in history. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And this is where, well, I think that, quote, in view of the impending crisis, that is in view of the return of Christ, It is well for you to remain as you are. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you marry, you don't sin. And if a virgin marries, she doesn't sin. Yet those who marry will experience distress in this life. And I would spare you that. (laughs) I'm not going to put that on the marquee outside. Uh, I mean, brothers and sisters, yeah. Don't use that at the toasting of the rehearsal dinner, Frank. I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let even those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, as those who buy as though they had no possessions. 
and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want to be free from anxiety. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord so that they may be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his fiancée, if his passions are strong and so it has to be, let him marry as he wishes. It is no sin. Let them marry. But if someone stands firm in his resolve, being under no necessity but having his own desire under control, and has determined in his own mind to keep her as his fiancée, he will do well. So then he who marries his fiancée does well, he who refrains from marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long, as long as her husband lives, but if the husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes only in the Lord. But in my judgment, she is more blessed if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. What I, what I would say is an additional, you know, aspect of, of wisdom about this is, and I, I want to say a couple of things, but one of them is that I I truly know, and my wife and I have this conversation all the time. I mean, she grew up; she's a, comes from a long line of clergy and missionaries. I mean, everybody in her family, the the number of people that were servants of the church in some way is just huge, going back about four generations. Um, it's not the case with me, but you know we both know, and and it's one of the reasons it works for us that that most of the time we have to put the you know the needs of the church or the needs of people in the church first. That it just that that is. That that's just our job. That's our calling. And with us, that's natural. It's not a source of conflict. Um, and I think Paul is, I think Paul and the Catholics are on to something in acknowledging that, that a total devotion to God uh, is that celibacy or, or being free from relationships is, is a gift that would enable that. But it's a rare gift. It's not a gift that I have or would want. But I don't think this is as archaic or just so anti-human as it would sound. Uh, I mean, there are just, you know, there are just times when you know as a as a minister that that you have to leave the family to go do something that has to be done. That is not limited to the ministry. I mean, doctors are like that. Surgeons are like that. 
CIA people are like that, military. I mean, there's a lot of professions that are like that. But I think there is, I think that Paul is on to something with this that he doesn't get credit for. Um, I also think that, you know, what history has done with slaves, I mean, that the passage on slaves is just odious, but it's not as odious as what people have done with it. To use it as, you know, slaves, if you're a slave, stay in that condition. You know, it's horrible what people have done with that. Uh, so, I, um, in some ways, Paul's not my guy, but I, I think there's some, I think there's some wisdom here, and the key thing is good order in the churches. And I want to say one other thing, and then, then recognize questions. Um, back in the 80s, you know, when I was first starting ministry in the late 70s, in the early 80s. I heard this sort of 32 through 35 um, let me see the verse I say this for your own benefit not to put any restraint upon you to promote good order and unhindered devotion in the church um I heard this used in conjunction with a person who was comparing it to the Samson story. And if you'll recall, Samson is the most charismatic of the judges. He gets the most ink. He's got four chapters out of 16 in the book devoted to him. And the theory being that Samson would have been a great judge, except not for women, but for his Inability of not having his act together as to how to handle those relationships. That he would have been terrific. He could have been a contender if he'd had that part of his life in order. And what, what impressed me, again, almost 40 years ago, was a New Testament professor applying that concept to people who are gay and lesbian. That, that the most important Thing is to know yourself and to and to get your sort of personal life in order in whatever form Paul's saying basically whatever form that takes why not to have your personal life in order but in order to be of value to God in order to serve to serve God and and what you know 40 years ago that was I mean, the church, you know, church and society has changed somewhat since then, but I, I really do think that what Paul is after is, and I mean, if you just, if you just take that concept, you know, come to know yourself as well as you can and put your personal life in order, because everybody in this room knows that when your personal life is messed up or out of order, you're not as much value to God. And I think it is best that's what Paul is, is getting at. But I'm not asking you to agree with it or to become little Paulinists running around, you know, because of that. So let me recognize Catherine first, okay? So I'm ready for questions. Yeah. Right. Correct. 
Right. Right. We would not have global warming anymore. (laughs) Yeah. The whole context is that. Right. He probably would. Or I hope he would. Or, you know, if he's talking to a bunch of 18-year-olds about what the next, you know, 40 years of their adult life should look like, it wouldn't be good, Yeah, right? I don't think it so would. Do we, we just ignore that because it's convenient the way that people cherry-pick from the Bible? Or is that like, you know, it, just seems, it just seems so strange when, the, when it's not a mystery here. Like, this is not sort of hard to understand if you read the whole chapter, but, like, it's clear. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that he believes, yeah, that he's talking about end times. It, it's, a, it's a really good question as to what leads people to take the Bible out of context. Um, one is that they don't know it. And, and what you all are doing, and what many people in this church are, have been doing, is slogging through the whole thing, so at least you've got some context for it. I also have a theory that um, I I do think that human sexuality is a very powerful force in history. Uh, And I think um, it is therefore high on the list of things we would like to contain or control or make laws about because we subconsciously know it's destructive power. And so there's you know, oh, this looks like a solution. I mean, I don't know that that's that's at work, but I but I've never, uh, I, and it's just like slavery. I mean, gee, uh, I mean, at some point, people in the 1700s who were thoughtful Christians woke up that one they were they were in a society that was economically dependent upon slaves, and two. Well, it says, slaves, obey your masters. Let's go with that. You see what I mean? We, we can never overestimate the human power to read a passage in our own self-interest, even unconsciously. And, that's, and the only guard to that is reading it and reading it and reading it and fighting and studying and talking and listening to each other and doing what Paul does is his best, which is to say, well, maybe, maybe this is my opinion, but not a word from the Lord. But that's a lifelong thing. So let me, there was a question. Yeah, Christine. You had said, um, you're talking about people uh, who were messed up being of less value to God. Than people I, I would say God. people whose personal lives were not in order, not in as right. good an order as they could be. I don't want to say messed up because we're all messed up. Okay. <laughs> I didn't say less value. I wouldn't say less value. That's what I heard. Okay. Um, and, and I appreciate your coming back at that. I, I think what I would say is that um, that the more we can know ourselves and, and know what our gifts are and and 
and make our decisions in our personal life in accord with that, you know, putting our lives in order or making them consistent with, with the call and gifts of God, we will do a better job serving God. I, I don't know that I'd want to put a value on it because certainly the other aspect is that God and Jesus spend a lot of, t- a lot of time on people who, who are messed up, you know, who seem to have less value. I wouldn't want to put a value judgment on it. It's just a, it's just a personal challenge. And all of us know, I mean, you know, once we've graduated from the nursery, we know we have bad days, and we know those days when we're not at our best. And it's just to always accept the challenge of trying to, you know, I hate to say be who we are because that's so popular, but it's really it's really to become, to be at our best. Not our most well-mannered, not our best looking, but just, you know, who we've been created and redeemed to be. Okay? Thanks for asking that, Kurt. And then I'll do somebody over here. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, a lot. Well, I mean, you know, you know what your cross is. Some people don't recognize that. See, maybe it's a Yeah. If I know, if I, if I know, like, for instance, if I was alcoholic and I'm trying to counsel somebody else about the drink, I can speak firsthand. But if I don't admit to myself that I'm a hypocrite, and that person will recognize that. Yeah. It's it's nuanced, and I I would I would add I mean I I'm have been honest with people, and I am honest with people that I I mean I've had two divorces, and and my family life uh, for a lot of different reasons is is a part of my life that I consider less successful in than other parts. Okay, and and I've had a lot of wrestling with that. Uh, it has it has really been. You know, wonderful the last uh, 10 to 15 years. Okay, I mean, but I really was in my mid 40s before I uh, got to the point where where I felt like I I was doing my best with what I could be with what I had. Um, I know that during times of turmoil, sometimes work was therapeutic and sometimes people in their times of crisis do their best work and and I'm not talking about don't don't do that it's just that when that becomes a, an escape from from putting yourself in order and believe me putting your life in order I, I think we get it about the time we're going to the funeral home for the last time I mean it's a lifelong process okay but it but it uh but pastorally. Now, somebody had a question over here. Was it Beth? I didn't have a question in the past, but it, it was just going to piggyback off what you said in terms of the context. And, and so I wanted to ask you what Okay. Okay. 
Okay, well, thank you, Beth. That's a blessing. So, um, other comments on this? Yes, Joanne. Yes. So that when I go to this passage, it somehow makes sense to me if I really understand that concept. Right. I'm not asking, you know. I mean, Paul gets. <laughs> I, I think. I think the evangelical community uses and loves Paul because. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think by and large they misuse him. I think. I I, I frankly think that. Because some of his statements are so inflammatory, and that that it's hard to get beyond those for for people who, you know, are more uh, who are not in the evangelical. I, yeah, I mean, misusing or interpreting. I mean, and, and we'll see it more. I mean, there's more to come, folks. I mean, when we get into when we get into Timothy and, and which are not necessarily Pauline letters, but but when it's very ordered about women and men and all that, in in some ways it's worse. And I I remember studying with Tom Long, walking through the pastoral epistles, and and it, sometimes he would come to a verse and he would say, "Gosh, I wish he hadn't said that," <laughs> you know, and and "Gosh, I wish he hadn't said that that way." And that's part of it. I mean, "Gosh, I wish he hadn't said it," but occasionally. You know, once or twice I've said that about myself. Not not very often. You know? <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's that's the humanity of this person. He will have said. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He is very malleable and quotable. Yeah. Right. You have to think about who he was and what he might have meant by that. But if you want him to have said something and you're and you're willing to ignore all kinds, yeah. I mean, you can find it in there. That's true, and that, and that may be harder to do with Jesus, actually. I don't know. I'm just trying to think. Y'all, y'all are racing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also the creation of the creation of a new law. Yeah. <laughs> That's rough. Because I gotta tell you, you might not be on the right. Side. Right. 
Right. Okay, Frank. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And I'm sorry I've started that ball rolling, Frank. Thank you for calling me on the carpet about that. So, right. right. But all of us deserve to be called on the carpet at times. So, Any other big questions? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you all talk in your small groups for about ten minutes. Okay. So why don't, we do, why don't you do the discussion questions? Uh, in verse, I mean, these are at the end. It's only three of them, so... But they're all the same. Have you ever had a religious leader say, I give this command, I give this command not I, but the Lord? Was that a positive experience, a negative experience, or a mixed experience? Explain your answer. Question two, have you ever had a religious leader say, I have no command of the Lord, but I give you my opinion? Was that a positive experience, negative, or mixed? Explain your answer. In what ways do you think Paul's teachings in chapter 7 might speak to the range of issues before the church and society today in human sexuality? Why don't you focus on the first two? And then if you've got time for three, go go after it. But uh, So, ready, set, go. Do one and two. What? Um. Okay, let me have have your attention back up here for one little 30-second final comment. I got this on a question that, that I think is worthwhile, and it's it's not really part of this lesson, but um, on the whole issue of sexuality in the Bible, there are there is a there's a discussion, an academic question that that is that is debated, and it's not something that I'm very uh, deeply knowledgeable about, but that really has to do with the question of whether Paul and other New Testament writers, when they're speaking generally of homosexuality in, in whatever form they're speaking of it in, you know, have an awareness or a consciousness of uh, of what we have come to, to see today about two people of the same sex being attracted and loving one another in a, in a, in a monogamous and committed relationship. I think there are probably, you know, good academic arguments on both sides of that question. Uh, I, I did read a book once on it and or, or on that and larger questions. There was a debate about 10 or 12 years ago, and I just found it incredibly dry. <laughs> so I couldn't, I just couldn't relate to it very well, uh, one way or the other. There are a couple of uses of Greek that 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 scholars would argue, yes, Paul is not here just talking about, you know, pedophilia or, or other forms of sexuality. But I don't know the debate deeply enough, nor to, to cast my lot with it. I, uh, I just am very much, I'm very much impressed by Paul's argument of, of people needing to find who they are and what their best gifts are. And, and when you do that and organize your life around that to the best of our abilities, uh, that we're that's what enables us to serve God the best. So anyway, thank you for your walking through this tonight.
And next week, idol meat will be great. <laughs> Food offered to idols. All right? Thank you. So, see you next week.